there was a single mother who was struggling with life, struggling with addiction, struggling providing for her two kids. Uh, just life was difficult. She meets a, a couple who were recently empty nesters. Kids are out of the house. They finally have some freedom to themselves, freedom of schedule, freedom of life. Uh, a nice quiet life, if you can imagine that. Well, these empty nesters make this decision to invite this woman and her kids into their home. They assist this woman with raising her two children. They, they help this woman uh, find recovery and find stable employment. And they have the opportunity to just, just uh, work with this couple, this family, for, for a period of about a year. They're able to see the woman and her kids get themselves on stable ground. They're able then to, to send them back into the community, to plant them on their own uh, into the community, standing on their own two feet. It's a great story. There's another couple. Another couple, they're in their second marriage. They've got three or four kids between the two of them. And they're navigating in their second marriage. Well, how do we make this marriage work? How do we figure this marriage thing out? On top of that, they have a successful small business that they are running and managing. In the middle of all that busyness, this couple decide to pursue adoption. They bring a child into their home from their foster system and adopt that child. They adopt a child overseas from a, a third world country. And in the midst of this busyness, this, this couple, they raise these kids. They provide a stable home for these children. They provide an education for them. And they launch those children as successful adults, something that would have been nearly impro improbable for those two kids based on their life circumstances when they were born. There's another man who had a rough childhood, as many of us understand. A man whose childhood was full of trauma and death and heartache, and somehow that man survives that childhood. He meets the girl of his dreams, marries her. They have a family together. But as they grow older, it's obvious that man has never learned how to process his emotions. He is impulsive. He's got anger. He numbs the pain inside of him, with some negative numbing agents. This man creates unnecessary, unnecessary stress and tension in his family and in his marriage. Puts fear in his wife that she had never experienced before. Yet for some reason, his wife sticks with him. She prays for her husband. She serves her husband. She encourages him and supports him as he begins to, to learn how to grieve his childhood in ways that he never understood before. And soon that wife got to rejoice as she experiences a new marriage with a husband who has a found emotional health. I love these stories, don't you? There's another one. There's a man. There's a man who went through the motions of his faith. He excelled at what many of us at church excel at, which is just looking the part, right? This man hid his personal demons. He hid his struggles until reality kicks in. And those demons rear their ugly head. The man lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his career. Even to the point that he is shunned by his church. See, most people in that situation would hide under a rock. Never to be heard from again. But this man, out of the depths of his despair, begins to share his story. Begins to walk along people who were doing the same thing as him, that were looking the part while, all the, while at the same time hiding their demons. 
He begins to challenge others and walk alongside them as they seek help to overcome those demons and those, those issues. Begins mentoring those people through those situations where they can find true freedom to walk with God with integrity. I love these stories. We could probably sit around a table and tell lots of stories just like this. In each of these stories, you have people in these stories who, who went to extraordinary lengths to give themselves away for somebody else, to give of themselves at an incredible cost to themselves to benefit somebody else. What would cause people to do that sort of thing? What would cause people to, to do this kind of thing? Why would they risk so much of themselves for somebody else? The answer is the greatest force in the world. The only force that is possible to change a person's life. The only force that is possible to change our world. Love. Love. The greatest force in the world. This morning we're going to be looking in, in 1 John chapter 3. We started a series last week called The Fruit of the Spirit, uh, which carries this idea. The reason we're in the fruit of the Spirit is because when I look around the world around us, you know what I see in the world, in our community? People are struggling. There's fear all around. People are, 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 are dealing with, with confusion and hurting. And what is the, those people in the world that are, are confused and struggling, what are they hearing from the church? And I'm not talking about what message do they hear us preach on Sunday morning. I'm not talking about our Christian platitudes that we put on social media. What is the world hearing from us, from our lives, from, from how we live, from our integrity, from our character? See, for too long, I think the church has just accepted the fact that we can look the Christian part, right? We can go to church. We can be moral people. We can share our Christian platitudes. We can do some good works that make us feel good. See, I want us to be challenged to consider the words of Jesus. That Jesus said, when we abide in him, when we abide in his gospel, that we produce much fruit. That when we abide and when we walk in the spirit, that there are certain characteristics that become increasingly true of us, not in our works, but in our character. And that's what this series is about. The fruit of the Spirit. The things that as we walk with God, as we abide in Him, these are characteristics that should be increasingly true of us. The fruit of the Spirit, we introduced them last week. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the work of the Spirit. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we seeing these things in our lives? As we look at our character, as we look at who we are, are we seeing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? And if we're not, that would be a warning to us or maybe an encouragement to us that maybe we're not abiding in Christ like we think we are. Maybe we're not as spiritual as we look. Maybe there's some growth that we need God to do in our lives. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to look at them individually to see what they should look like in our lives. I want to just reiterate, and we said this last week, we're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit. Listen, I do not want you to hear this is something you need to go and do. 
I don't want you to hear, we're going to talk about love, and then you get convicted, or like, I better go and love everybody. Listen, the key to this series, the key to the fruit of the Spirit, is not us going and doing. We can't manufacture these things on our own. The key is that we abide in Christ. We abide in what He's done for us, that we walk in the Spirit. We allow Him to be our shepherd, our guide, our leader. 1 John is, is kind of known as a book of love. And what I love about this is the author of this book, his name is John, if that might surprise you. John has not always been a guy who is known for love. In fact, in fact when Jesus called uh, John and his brother James to be his disciples, he, he gave them a name and called them the sons of thunder. Why would he call them the sons of thunder? Because they probably had a short fuse, like some of us, Right? In fact, in Luke chapter 9, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is looking for lodging with his disciples. They're looking for a place to stay the night. And they're asking around, and nobody will let them stay with them. And so you know what James and John say? They're kind of like, like a mother at the school drop-off during the morning when they're dropping the kids off at school. They say, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy these people? You parents that do drop-off, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They're like, let's, let's do this. Jesus is like, no, 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 we're not going to. We're not going to lash out in anger. That's James and John. That's John. But after three years of walking with Jesus, of being one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his closest disciples, John's heart is transformed. And now he's known as the apostle of love. In fact, in the book of 1 John, we're going to see the word love listed over 40 times in this book. Something had happened in John's life. And that is what I want for us, to have our hearts transformed, that our character would produce the work of the Spirit. So here's our text today, verse 11. John writes and says, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, to love one another. When he says this is the message you've heard from the beginning, he's saying that to the original, uh, to the original uh, listeners that John's writing to, and to you and I, this command to love one another, it shouldn't be surprising to us. It shouldn't be surprising to any of us. In fact, if you remember the story with Jesus where uh, some Pharisees, some religious people come up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, what's the most important disciple? Or what's the most important commandment? Remember what Jesus said? He pointed back to the very beginning of Scripture, to the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's first. And the second is just like, it's just as important to love your neighbor as yourself. These two things go hand in hand. The greatest commandment, he points all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, is all about love. And see, when we grasp it's like the very center of Christianity, the, 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 the very big center of, of, of what we do is all about love. In fact, it shouldn't surprise us that when we see the fruit of the Spirit, it shouldn't surprise us that the first fruit of the Spirit, the first characteristic that should be evident in our lives if we're walking with Jesus is love. And if you notice, he talks about specifically love of the brothers. And so we need to love people in general, but specifically he wants to emphasize love in the church. Love with our fellow believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now verse 12, John gives us a little bit of a warning. I think John knows that, that our natural tendency is not to love others. I think John knows that our human nature, our, our sinful flesh, is normally it produces a selfishness in us, a love of self. 
In fact, I would say this is probably our greatest temptation in life, is to love ourselves more than other people. And so he, he, he gives this warning, and it says in verse 12, you should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, who murdered his brother. If you are not familiar with that story, that story of Cain and Abel comes out of the book of Genesis chapter 4. In that story, uh, Cain and Abel are the sons of Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, they, they urged their sons. They said, hey, we want you guys to worship God. We want you to, to worship God. And so Cain, he was a farmer. So he takes some of the fruit of the ground, and he offers that to God as his offering to worship. And Abel, Abel, he was my kind of a guy. Uh, he, was, he was a rancher. So he took his firstborn of the flock, offered some red meat to Jesus. That's good, some red meat there. And the scripture says that God accepted the offering from Abel, but not from Cain. And we wonder, well, why did, why did God accept the offering from Abel and not from Cain? They both came to make an offering. They both came to worship. Hebrews 11 tells us why God accepted Abel and not Cain. Hebrews 11 says that Abel's sacrifice was made in faith. Cain's sacrifice was not made in faith. The story of Abel and Cain is meant to instruct us it's meant to instruct Cain and us that we are to approach God by faith. In everything we do, we approach God by faith. But Cain didn't learn that message. Instead, it led to him murdering his brother Abel. Now, I love because in 1 John 3, John asks that question. Well, why did Cain murder Abel? And he answers it in verse 12. And he says, because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. See, the issue between Cain and Abel is Cain was jealous of his brother. He saw the blessing his brother was getting. He saw him being accepted by God, and he wanted that for himself. And he became enraged. And jealousy led him to lash out and to murder his brother. Let me ask you this question. What do you think the root of jealousy and murder and hatred is? What's the root of those things? Now, I recognize there's probably smarter people in this room, smarter people listening online. But I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking, you know, the root, the root of jealousy, isn't, that, isn't it that we love ourselves more than we love other people? Isn't the root of jealousy and anger and all those things the fact that we love ourselves more than we love other people? Because... When we love ourselves more than others, we can't rejoice when somebody else is blessed. We can't be happy that they get this blessing from God. We can't ask for help because that would acknowledge that we don't have it all together, that we're, not, we're insufficient as we are. When we love ourselves more than others, we don't actually love people. We use people to serve our own purposes. In fact, last week we talked about the works of the flesh. Things like enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalry, dissensions and envy. When you hear all of those things, I think we could go out on a limb and say all of those things are rooted in a love of self. That we love ourselves more than other people that results in all of these tensions and issues between people. So verse 13, John says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now that statement, 
is true in itself, right? We, we, we know that to be true. Jesus said the same thing. Amongst other places, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, the world has hated me, and as you are a follower of me, they will hate you as well. This statement is true, but I want us to think about the context. Why did John put this statement? The world's going to hate you in the middle of this conversation about love and Cain and murder. I think, again, I think this is a warning to us. A warning to us about not hating one another. See, the world who does not know God, the world who loves itself, who, who loves ourselves over other people, it hates the Christians who are supposed to love, be known for their love. And I think the warning that John gives us is the world is full of anger and hate and jealousy and rivalry and revenge. And I, and I think he knows that we're going to be always tempted to do the same thing. And I think the warning is, do not be like the world and do not hate your brothers and sisters. As Christians, we shouldn't be like the world. We shouldn't have this anger and this hatred and this jealousy and these other issues between one another. We ought to be characterized by love. That's the way our relationships with one another should be characterized is through love. I think this is a warning. Do not be like the world and hate your brothers and sisters. Now, obviously, we're talking about love. The question is, what is love? Or as Hathaway, as Hathaway would say, what is love? I won't go any further because that's terrible. I get it. It's an old song for you young people. I don't know. Actually, maybe it's not that old. I don't know. Something like that. We all have ideas about what love, what love is, right? We all have ideas about love is. In fact, I was taking a, 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 a class on premarital, premarital counseling so I could learn how to be a, a good premarital counselor. And the instructor of the class uh, said, yeah, I'm going through this uh, premarital counseling session with this couple. Uh, we get towards the end of the session, and we're talking about the actual wedding ceremony. And they're like, hey, we want to we wanna do our own vows. And the, the instructor said, well, I told the couple, okay, that's good. Well, what do you want to do for your vows? And they said, well, they're kind of close to the original vows, just a little bit different. He said, well, let me hear it. And this is the vows they wrote. They said, I take you to be my wedded wife for richer or poor, in sickness and health, until we no longer feel in love with each other. Is that what love is? Is love a feeling that kind of comes and goes? Is love just an emotion? Is it a mushy thing? What is love? John defines it for us. Verse 16. He says, this is a standard of love. This is how we know love. That Jesus laid down his life for us. See, the gospel message is the standard for us, for what love is. Now, when we say the gospel, this is simply a word that summarizes what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The gospel is a summarization that Jesus, who knew no sin, he became sin for us. He took our sin upon himself. He died in our place, and he suffered our punishment so that we could be moved from death to life. That is what the gospel is. And why did Jesus do that? Because of love. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. That is why he did this. He put others' needs above his own. It was sacrificial. It was costly. That is what love is. Love is when we put other people's needs above our own. Love is when we sacrifice for one another. Love costs something. 
And you know, oftentimes, love's going to hurt. It's flat out going to just hurt. Picture Jesus on the cross. Yeah, that hurt Jesus. And that is a picture of what love is. In fact, John continues in verse 16 and says that same thing. He says, you ought to lay down your lives for your brothers. Just like Jesus. Jesus gave his life for us. You and I should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, honest, I say that, and all of us kind of puff up our chest. Well, of course, I would give my life for any of you. I would do that. I totally would do that. We talk a big game, don't we? And oftentimes, we assume we're better than we really are. Because John knows that's our tendency. So he's going to make things a little bit awkward. Verse 17, he presses and says, if anyone sees a brother in need and closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, do not love in word and in talk, but in deed and in truth. See, talk is cheap. Talk is, is cheap. Love I'll borrow this from DC Talk. Love is a verb. Love requires action. In fact, Jesus said, Jesus said, when you are faithful with little, then you prove yourself to be faithful with much. And so we stand up here and say, well, it's easy. I'd give my life for another person. And John gets a little more personal and says, well, let me ask you this. You say you'd give your life for another person. Let me ask you to pull out your checkbook. Let me ask you to pull out your calendar. Are you sacrificing these little things for those in need right now? Because we talk a big game, of course I'd give my life. But let's just talk these little things. How are you actually doing in meeting the needs of the people around you? Now I know we're in church. And every one of us in here, we have that defense attorney inside of us that's fueled by Satan. That defense attorney, when I say this, your defense attorney says, objection, objection. There's often a reason why people are in need. Like, I shouldn't give to people in need because it might enable them to continue making poor choices in their life, right? At least that's what my defense attorney begins to say. But here's what I'm finding in Scripture, and it's challenging me to my core. You and I, we don't get to pick and choose the needy people that God puts in front of us. See, we've already said love is hard which means we might be taken advantage of, which means we might have to, to, to love people and sacrifice for people that are undeserving. That when we love sacrificially, people, they might abuse our love. It happens all the time, right? In fact, every one of us listening this morning, we're guilty of the same things. We're guilty of being undeserving of love. We're guilty of abusing the love that's been given to us. I mean, just think about this. Jesus. Jesus paid an incredible price to be your shepherd, to be your leader, to be your guide, to be the voice that you follow. Yet how many times do we know what we should do, but we don't do it? How many times does Jesus say, this is what I want for you? And we're like, well, I'm going to go do my own thing anyways. Are we not in that same situation where we are abusing the love that Jesus has given to us? Yeah, we're so concerned about somebody abusing the love we're giving to somebody else. I want to skip back to, to verse 14, which is really the climax of this text. Verse 14, 
John says, we know that we have passed from death to life. He said, this is how you know whether or not you are truly abiding in Jesus, whether you are abiding in the gospel. Here's how you know if you are walking in the spirit because you have love for your brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. In fact, if you're like me and you love to write notes in your Bible, next to verse 14, you might write John chapter 13, verse 35. Because Jesus said this, they will know we are Christians by our love. This is a hard truth. That we can go to church all our lives. We can live a moral life. We can talk the talk. We can raise our hands and worship. We can go on mission trips. We can do all these things. But if we're not willing to love others more than we love ourselves, the question we have to ask ourselves is, have we truly passed from death to life? Have we truly came to know the love of God? We prove our faith is real by how we love one another. Do you see this connection now to the fruit of the Spirit? See, last week, last week as we introduced the fruit of the Spirit, we said if you are walking with God and abiding in Jesus, if you are abiding in the gospel, if you're walking in the power of, your, of the Spirit, not in your own power, but the power of the Spirit, then the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, these things will be characteristics that are increasingly evident in our lives. And here John says that same exact thing. He says, if your life is characterized by the love of others, not in word, but in self-sacrificial actions, that proves and shows that you as a person has placed your faith in Jesus and you have passed from death to life. In fact, here's, here's, my, here's a summary of this message. This is what love is. This is what love is. Love is sacrificially giving of ourselves to others which shows our genuine faith. And I want you just to be honest between you and the Lord. Is your life characterized by that kind of love? Are you giving yourself away to other people in a way that costs you something, in a way that is sacrificial? When you look at your schedule and your bank account and your relationships, do those things show that you are a person characterized by love of others or a love of self? You know, in this text, there's this lot of conversation about how we're supposed to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're supposed to love the church and the people of God and other believers. And so I want to just throw out this pastoral question. It's important for us to hear in this season of life we're in. How engaged are you with the church? The church is a place where our brothers and sisters, as believers, we're supposed to put our love in action. The church is a place that we're supposed to experience the love of others as well. Listen, this season we're in, man, this has been a hard season. People seem less engaged in church than ever. It's been a hard season of church, and I get it. I get it. There's all sorts of reasons. We have all sorts of excuses. And some of those excuses are actually good excuses. But in this season where people seem less engaged in the church, I'll just be honest, I think this is a season when the church needs love of one another more than ever. 
right? See, church, church is not about us coming and receiving. It's not about us coming to a service and hearing some mediocre preaching. It's not about us singing some songs. It's about us being a part of the family of God. It's about us having an opportunity to love one another, to serve one another, to, to engage one another. And as we do that, this fuels us. That fuels us then to go into our week to love our families, to love our neighborhoods, to love our schools, to love our workplaces. It's the way that God has orchestrated us in the church. So as a pastor, I want to just ask you, would you engage deeper with the church body? Would you practice sacrificial love with one another right here at Restoration Church? And this is where we come, application. How do we do this? How do we grow in our love? How do we become those people like we talked about in the very beginning of the message that gave themselves away for someone else? Again, I'm going to say this every week of the series. The fruit of the Spirit, this is not a list of things you need to try harder to do. The fruit of the Spirit is a product. It is what happens when you and I are abiding in Jesus and abiding in the gospel. See, the gospel is this, that Jesus went to incredible depths to accomplish what makes you and I right with God. He went to the cross. He took our sins upon himself. He took every time that we loved ourselves more than other people. He took our jealousy. He took our anger. He took those times that we don't actually physically murder someone, but we murder them in our heart. He took those things upon himself. He died for those things. He was buried, and three days later, he rose from the grave. Why? So we could experience the freedom of sin and Satan and death and hell. He rose from the grave so we could begin to no longer love ourselves, but so that he would give us a new heart. That his fruit of the Spirit would be increasingly present in our life. He rose from the grave to give us a new heart where we can actually begin to genuinely love people and give ourselves away for the good of others more than ourselves. And you, you see, we said this, and I believe this with all my heart. Love is the most powerful force in the world. And the love of Jesus, it changes everything. The love of Jesus changes everything. That as we abide in the love of Jesus, man, that pumps the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives. And it changes us. And it heals our brokenness. It redeems the rough parts of, of, of our character. And as we abide in Jesus, and as he pumps the power of the Holy Spirit into us, that supernaturally begins to produce a genuine love for others that we have never experienced before. And that is when you have people who are empty nesters saying, you know what, I'm going to invite this family into my home to love on them, to give of myself for them. That's when a couple with all sorts of issues that they're already dealing with in a new marriage and, and with their own kids, that's when they invite kids into their home to adopt them, to give them a whole different future. See, love is not something we manufacture. Love is something that flows through us. That as we receive love from God, then it flows through us to the people around us. And that is when, that is when we make a difference in the world. 
fact, I want to close. There was a story from David Wilkerson, who was a former pastor in New York City. He started the Teen Challenge program, a teen recovery program. And he told a story about how, he told a story about his, his what he thought was his biggest ministry, ministry mistake, his biggest ministry failure. And way back in his early days of his ministry, they decided to start a group home. So they bought this house. They started funneling a ton of money into this home. They got some staff for this home. And then they realized there's a lot of challenges within the state to, to manage a, a group home. A lot of hurdles they had to jump through. They only had four boys to come to this home before they shut it down after a couple of months. And David said, you know what? I thought that was my biggest ministry mistake. We wasted all that time and energy and resources with very little impact. And then David said, 30 years later, though, I got this letter. And in this letter, the guy said, David, you probably don't remember me, but I want to tell you my story. My, death, my dad left our family when, when I was young. And after dad left, mom struggled with depression and addiction. Starting at age six, I began cooking and taking care of my baby brother. Mom had a string of boyfriends that would abuse mom, they'd be, abuse me. And it left mom increasingly despondent. Till one day when I was 10, I walked into my mom's room and found that she had taken her life. I was placed in state custody. For the next several years, I dealt with it. I didn't know how to deal with the pain, and the hurt, the anger. And I acted out in every way possible. Alcohol, drugs, theft, violence. By the time I was 13, the police and the court system had a decision to make. They could have locked me up until I was an adult. But instead, they chose to put me in your group home. In that short time, my life was changed. Because those house parents, they loved me. They forgave me when I screwed up. When I tried to push them away and drive them away, they stayed faithful to me. They provided for me. They took me to church where I heard about a God who loves me unconditionally. They introduced me to people in the church who showed love for me. For the first time, I experienced unconditional love. And that changed my life. So I'm writing this 30 years later because I wanted you to know that I've planted a church. Our church has invested heavily in our city in ministering to single moms and at-risk youth. In fact, we are starting a group home very soon. He said, our church is changing our city. And I want you to know, it started because of your love for me. I don't know about you, but I want my life to matter. I want to make a difference in my family. I want to make a difference in our community. I want to make a difference in our church. I want us to be people like the stories we talked about in the very beginning. I want us to be people like David Wilkerson who, who, who love and change lives. 
I want people to say of Restoration Church. Those crazy people at Restoration Church, it's crazy how they loved me unconditionally. It's crazy how they gave me second chances. It's crazy how they extended forgiveness for me. It's crazy how they stayed with me through my dark days. These things are found in the power of love. And as you and I, as we abide in the love of Jesus, as we abide in the gospel and what he's done for us, that is when his love flows through us and enables us to love others as he loves us. And it's that supernatural love that transforms our families, our neighborhoods, our church, and our community. That's what I want for us. To be people who abide in the love of Jesus and allow that love to flow through us, those around us. And we get to be a part of God changing lives. Let's pray.